Hello, I'm Zev Newirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our conversation today is centered on a healthcare leader and an integrated healthcare system that are making some significant changes in their approach to healthcare delivery and really impacting the health of a state that is the state of Nevada. I had the opportunity to speak with our guest and his colleagues in a previous phone call a few weeks ago. And I have to tell you, it was a real thrill and a pleasure. Uh, you know, people talk about authentic leadership and authentic leadership teams, about integrity and being mission driven. And I have to say, our guest and his colleagues today really embody that and live it, at least from my perspective. And so it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Tony Slonim to this episode of Creating a New Healthcare. Before we begin, let me just tell you a little bit about Dr. Slonim. Tony is president and chief executive officer of Renown Health in Reno, Nevada. Over the last four years, he and his colleagues have created one of the nation's most innovative and progressive health services organizations. Dr. Slanum and his colleagues caught the industry's attention by launching the Healthy Nevada Project, the first population health study that combines genetic, environmental, social, and clinical data to address individuals and communities' health needs. And we're going to definitely get into that. Dr. Slanum is nationally recognized as a thought leader. In fact, Modern Healthcare has named him one of the 50 most influential clinical executives in 2019. He's also been named since 2014 on the Becker's Hospital Review List as a physician leader to know. He's a board-certified pediatric intensivist by training. He's authored more than 15 textbooks and published more than 60 academic journal articles. He currently serves as the editor for the Physician Leadership Journal and the Physician Leadership Library. Before joining Renowned Health, Dr. Slonim served in executive leadership roles at Barnabas Health in New Jersey, Carilion Clinic in Virginia, and at the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. He's also held hospital appointments at the National Institute of Health and the Walter Reed Medical Center. He currently serves as the American Hospital Association's Systems Council, representing more than 300 integrated health systems nationwide. It is just such a pleasure to introduce Dr. Slonim to you all. And, and Tony, how are you doing today? Great, Zeb. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been really, really looking forward to speaking with you. I've gone online and, and looked you up. I, I have to ask you something before we get into you know some of the serious matters, but you have a lot of degrees. I, I didn't even bother listing all the degrees you have from you know, black belts and six sigmas and MDs and PhDs and, and, uh, and a degree in nursing. And you have a master's and doctorate in public health. I have a master's and my wife says, you're never going back to grad school again. How did you, and why did you get all these degrees? Well, it's a good question. You know, I, I love the stimulation of learning, learning new things, challenging myself each day. And, and, you know, they're just personal interests. As I, started to care for patients in the intensive care unit, what became apparent to me, particularly in the pediatric ICU, was that most of what we saw, nearly a third to half of all of our admissions had to do with the public health problem. 
there was an overdose, there was child abuse, there were challenges with motor vehicle accidents and distracted driving. And wow, when you take a step back and you think not only about what you could do for people after they're ill or injured, but what you might do to prevent the illness or injury, that's what got me down the path of public health education. And, and once I got hooked, I just kept going. What years did you did you do the master's? Did you get hooked in this way? How long ago was that? Uh, 20 years ago or so. I had some amazing, amazing mentors at the time who shared with me the vision that if I really wanted to advance medicine and healthcare leadership, it would take another degree and another discipline of knowledge outside of uh, my MD. And so in fellowship, I began pursuing my master's. And then when I was a junior attending, junior faculty member got my doctorate in public health. That's remarkable. I, I think, you know, we, we talk a lot now about the social determinants of health. And, and in the last three, four, five years, uh, it's really been gaining some steam. But you are way ahead of the curve in understanding that. I just wonder, I mean, how many uh, healthcare system, integrated delivery network system CEOs have a doctorate in public health? I, I think that's got to be a pretty rare commodity. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but it, based on the folks that I'm seeing around town, I actually just met, we have a wonderful new research leader in town who also is an MDDRPH. But uh, yeah, I think we're we're pretty rare birds. It's wonderful. I, I really applaud you for it. And, and thanks for sharing that. It explains a lot, uh, I think, in terms of not only who you are and what you're doing, but I think the direction that the organization that you're leading is moving in. So let me ask you, what, could you tell us, tell the audience a little bit about Renown Healthcare System? How large is it? Uh, a little bit about the integrated health uh, plan that you have? Sure. So Renown Health is a moderate-sized health system. We, we can engage health systems in a, across a variety of metrics. We have a thousand beds, three acute care hospitals, a rehab hospital, and all of the other essential elements of an integrated delivery network. We've got a medical group of about 400 employed doctors. We obviously have a, a very broad medical staff with members representing the majority of medical specialties, um, home care, hospice, that, that kind of continuum of care from preventive and wellness and alternative care all the way up through and including end-of-life and hospice care. We are the largest health system in Northern Nevada and the only not-for-profit serving the needs of our community. And we, we pride ourselves in the fact that we are locally governed and locally managed. Picking up on what you were saying before in terms of your background, I, I before we get into talking about some of the the really great initiatives that, that you, you've been deploying, you and your team and, and your system, what is the why here for you? What is the problem in healthcare. And, and again, I think what you said before about your background may be a good platform for this, but when you set out as the CEO and wanted to make improvements, what did, when you looked at the environment in healthcare, uh, what did you see as the major uh, problems to be solved for? Yeah, I think that there's uh, there are obviously a few. Uh, and our healthcare system is, I believe, too complicated and doesn't provide appropriate access. So a fundamental redesign kind of needs to happen. And when you have an environment like we do, you know, it's almost like a natural petri dish here. We can, we can challenge ourselves to think and create and innovate differently 
um, try things, and if they don't work, retry them, and not be afraid of failure by moving forward with ideas and and processes that, as long as you keep, we can't be afraid to innovate. We have to be keeping our finger on the pulse, making sure that our changes don't uh, negatively impact those we're serving. But hey, by the way, there probably are a whole bunch of new and innovative ways to deliver care for people. I think the seminal moment for me, I had been a student, as I mentioned, of public health intersected with my medical degree. And I, I love the, the comparison. You know, our, our MDs teach us, our medical curriculum teaches us how to care for one patient and one family at a time. And the public health lens is much broader than that. We talk about populations. We talk about communities. We talk in terms that you know, many MDs may not may not appreciate, which uh, which are epidemiologic terms and rates and patterns and conditions. And it wasn't until uh, I myself got stricken with cancer in 2001 that this became particularly relevant. And here I was getting amazing care. I was already a, a young healthcare executive at the time, and. Uh, it was a, an inspiring moment for me because, you know, I knew people who could get me access to some of the greatest places in the world to get your cancer treated. And across the waiting room from me were people who had the very same kind of cancer, but had delays in diagnosis because of inadequate access, uh, whatever the reasons for the access problems might have been. And, I, and it, it was a wake-up call for me where it said, you know, geez, you're no different from them. What could we have done differently? Why are you so fortunate to be able to uh, get this kind of care and access, and yet people just across the room from you can't? And and that wake-up call for me, I think, was instrumental in playing out for the rest of my career, thinking through ways uh, thinking through the disparities that we have in healthcare. First, I did some work on, you know, from a research perspective on insurance status disparities, but we also acknowledge in the literature racial and ethnic disparities. We certainly acknowledge the socioeconomic disparities, and all of those things contribute to adverse health status. The problem is, while we pay attention to them as physicians, we're often too busy to impact them. And so my my work as a CEO aligns perfectly with being able to impact those kinds of determinants of health. Leave I, I leave it to my physician colleagues now who are still practicing medicine to manage the clinical care. And I have turned with our team our attention to some of those other determinants of health status in our community. Such a, a, a brilliant story. I, I just want to just reflect on, you know, a couple of things, one of which is, well, thank you, first of all, for sharing your story. And second, you know, most of us, I think that would go through something like this, it would be very, very focused on ourselves. Uh, you know, here you are looking at others and noticing the disparity in care between yourself and other people, like you said, that were seeking care for similar conditions. And so I, I just think that's remarkable in and of itself. I want to ask you, a couple of questions. I guess, you know, when people talk about disparities, I get the sense when I have these conversations that, you know, people think this is a small section of the, uh, a small percentage of, of the American public that is experiencing this disparity, uh, this inequality of care, whether it be in insurance or, and or 
care itself, even if you do have insurance. And, you know, given your background and your expertise, I'm just kind of curious, what percentage of the population, and I, I imagine it varies by, by geography and, and zip codes, and whatnot, but what percentage in your area would you say that, you know, is, is experiencing this disparity? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. And as you dissect out, Zev, some of the determinants from socioeconomic determinants to, you know, elements that are contributors like addiction and mental illness, which we know are very underappreciated in our communities across the nation and, frankly, have fundamental access problems. Um, Every family is affected by these. Everyone knows someone, particularly now with the opioid crisis where, wow, if – um, you, you can reflect on people that you know, neighbors, friends, colleagues, who are struggling with an issue related to mental illness or addiction. And boy, it's just not attended to. Screening mechanisms, prevention mechanisms. And for us in our community, it's been a particular problem because Reno, Nevada, our history is built on the gaming industry and gambling. And so they're, you know, gamblers aren't particularly known for their health. And so, you know, we have excesses in food intake and alcohol and smoking and a whole bunch of other things, which are part of the culture. As our culture has evolved and our community has evolved from a gaming community to much more of a tech industrial logistics community, we're seeing uh, and, and I love it. We're seeing ourselves being challenged by our consumers differently. They are expecting different things from their health system. It's not about, obviously, it's, it's, it's always about treat my heart disease, treat my cancer, make sure there's a children's hospital for my kids. But at the same time, our consumer base is much more focused on prevention. I was with a a, a dear colleague yesterday who was sharing with me that in their organization, which happens to be a casino, they have a physician on staff to provide wellness to their employees. Well, that's, that's dramatic that for, for a industry that, you know, plays to people's addictions, if you will, gambling and drinking and smoking to be able to, for employees assure that, they're getting the right access to health and prevention and weight loss and smoking cessation, all of the other things that we need to do to frame a new uh, ideal of health for our community. So that was, that was pretty dramatic. If even the, the casino industry could do it, then we should all be taking notice that this is the right thing to do. That's a fascinating topic just to get into that whole kind of employer-employee health and particularly in the, in the industry, the gaming industry that, that, that exists there. You know, you mentioned also before this notion that individual physicians and other providers of care provide care, medical care, clinical care to individuals. And in order to address the larger issues of uh, community health uh, impact, the social determinants of health, you know, I'd suggest even these issues we've just been talking about, like the opioid crisis and, and alcoholism and smoking. These are, these are larger issues that are really, really tough for any individual provider to tackle. And you made a good point, which I want to underscore, which is it actually takes a larger system to do it. Um, it, it may take something even larger than an individual system um, 
to, to maybe, you know, working with, with other stakeholders in the community. So I want to hear if that makes sense to you, if you agree with that, or you've got a different take on that. And then I'd love for you to jump into some of the initiatives you've launched uh, in Nevada uh, to, to deal with some of these larger issues. Yeah, you know, Zeb, I think you're right on point, which is let's talk at the individual level. Many of us as physicians, again, came up through disease management circles where someone comes to us with a problem and we treat the problem. It's very uh, task-oriented, if you will. I come with chest pain, my chest pain gets treated. I come with a lump, it either gets removed or diagnosed in some way that needs effective treatment or not moving forward. And we're so busy as physicians and the practice of medicine has become a bit cumbersome with, you know, technologies and things that hinder our performance or impact our performance and take our time as physicians that we're not often left to care for. And I use that word intentionally, care for people, not just patients, but people. Oftentimes, as we know, the people who seek out our care often want to talk about something. There may be something that brings them to the office, but they want to talk about some other concern that may not be relegated to a physical symptom. And just like physicians, I think our health systems have struggled in that system of care. We, uh, not the least of which, get paid for caring for illnesses and conditions. And as health systems and hospitals, we don't get cared for, we don't get paid for caring for uh, people. Right, We get episodic, the payment system works on episodic encounter-based care, not um, you know, the care of the person. And unfortunately, that constrains our ability to make big impact. But I think you're absolutely right. It requires a broader system of care in order to be able to affect our outcomes at the community level. And I know what we've one of the things that I, I'm proud of here at Renown Health that our teams have implemented is what we call institutes. And this goes to that backdrop that we were just talking about. If you give the challenge of prevention and immunization rates to the providers who are worried about staffing the hospital, they never get to that work. You need different people, perhaps even with different educations, to manage the public health measures in the community. So I always say, right, wow, how great would it be where we have a captive audience for the 100,000 people that visit our emergency departments every year. While they're there, shouldn't we give them a flu shot? Shouldn't we check in on their Pneumovax vaccination? Shouldn't we do all of the things that they need from a prevention, since the prevention perspective, since they're a captive audience waiting in our emergency department, often for hours? Well, the reality of it is that the people who are um, responsible for delivering emergency care, the furthest thing in their mind as they're trying to keep the flow of an emergency department going is vaccinations. And so we've created what we call institutes whose sole responsibility is not health care, but health. And we've got a couple of these things. And they drive to specific populations. So the example I use often is we have an amazing children's hospital and we have 100,000 children in the community. 
only 15% or about 15,000 kids will ever step inside the children's hospital. Well, that must mean then that the rest of our kids in our community, the other 85,000 are healthy. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. We have high rates of suicide among adolescents. One in five of our, of our adolescents are addicted to a substance. We have high school dropout rates that are too high. We, we've got to get a better handle and on, on health for kids if we're going to be successful. And that's where the Child Health Institute comes in. We currently have a couple of kids right now hospitalized in our pediatric ICU from an accident, a motor vehicle accident where they were struck within the first two weeks of school. And I can't stand here as a guy who runs a trauma center and not feel that there was something we could have done better prior to them getting struck by cars. That's our work. And so, wow, I'm challenging our team to think differently about child health as we go about that work. How can we not only be there, the community counts on us to be there as a trauma center when they get injured, but we're not effectively doing our job if we're not backing up that clock and saying, what were the root causes that led to that child's injury in the first place? And were there things that could have been done to prevent it? Slower speed zones in school system districts, different, you know, traffic lights or blinker lights that were perhaps different, crossing guards. What are the things that we need to get involved and advocate for that could save lives? but for the fact that we're not doing them. And that's where I think my role comes in as a CEO who happens to be a physician is that advocacy and, and that partnership with elected officials, other not-for-profits in the community, the sheriff's office to think differently, help them see the work and challenges in our community from a lens of health. And, and that's, that's the task we've taken on. That's super. There, there's so many uh, wonderful things that were in what you said. I, I just want to touch upon a couple. One was, you know, my experience and observation is that we try to take all of health care and health and public health and community health. We, we try to take all of that and stuff it into the 10 to 15 minutes, uh, minute, you know, doctor's visit. And to your point, whether it's vaccinations or even some of the preventive stuff and, you know, smoking cessation and that short period of time, in addition to some of the challenges you were describing before with the electronic uh, medical records and, and, and the other, you know, technologies. So, you know, you have this poor provider there trying to do all this and then more and more gets dumped into this. And I think, you know, what you've done, it sounds like is you're, you're saying, look, no, there's, there's a specific task or goal in that visit that can be accomplished and should be accomplished, then there's all this other stuff we're going to take outside of that. And we're going to have a maybe a parallel uh, set of activities that uh, you're calling institutes that will focus on these other issues like the social determinants of community health, public health, prevention, these sorts of things. And, and we're going to deliver that care even to people in the community who don't make it into the hospital or into that 15-minute doctor visit. And so that's, that's the picture. And I really, really want to emphasize that because I see so many other systems trying to stuff more and more into that short little, you know, provider visit. Um, and it doesn't work. And, and I think it contributes to a lot of the burnout. And so that, that was point number one. And, and I'm, I'd love for you to, t to take that on. And point number two is, uh, or embellish on that. And point number two is that 
you made a, you've made a leap, and again, not surprising given your background in public health and your own experience as a patient. But you know, you made a leap from, you know, and I can imagine some people out there thinking, you know, he's running a hospital system. Since when do hospital systems get into public health? I mean, you know, you made it sound like it's absolutely the right thing to do, which I agree with, but it is different than it's been in the past. So I, I, I just wanted to point that out. And I guess my, the question would be, you know, how do you understand that leap or that transition and why? Why would a hospital system be focused on that? Uh, let me take the second one first, because the leap for, for us is actually pretty easy. When you think about why people seek out your care and start very scientifically analyzing that and understanding that, you quickly uncover that the things that they need is not more medical care often, it's more social care. And so getting involved in the community and better understanding that work is is paramount to how you might be able to affect the way the health of your community. And, you know, as physicians, I think in particular, this goes back to the first question you asked, which is, well, how do you get physicians to understand our roles as we're learn as we're leading into this work? And, and I've also, you know, I've had the great fortune in my career to have served as a bedside nurse. I was a nurse before I went to medical school working in the emergency department. And I think, you know, I can remember from medical school that the that the professors who were held in the highest esteem were the ones who were expert diagnosticians, right? They were the ones you'd call in when you had a complicated case that no one could figure out. And they would go through their process, whatever. And you prided yourself on as being the person who could make the diagnosis that no one else could, right? That's what we got trained to do. And it was fun and it was exciting and it was sexy. That was the, that was the stuff that, you know, television programs about doctors were made about. And unfortunately, we left behind what I call, you know, we never got trained in the world of being a social diagnostician. And if we would have applied in our medical school curriculum, an ability and a pride around being a social diagnostician, we would much, we would be much more capable of caring for the people who come to look at us because their social circumstances, whether it's their, you know, their income or their ethnicity or their access to food or housing or any other thing, our ability to diagnose those gaps is probably as important, if not more important to their, to their underlying health status. And the you know I, I've I've used this example on one of my TED talks before. I, I'm a pediatrician by background, and oftentimes you know a young mom would be criticized for not you know not having her child fully immunized. But if you sit and talk to that mom, she's really worried about having enough money to buy that child food as her money for the month is running out. You know, immunization, she had a healthy baby. Immunization is not top of mind for her. She's worried about food and diapers and and those kinds of things. And that that runs prevalent through our community. I had a young woman approach me last week as I was walking into um, to a store and asked for some help on diapers for her children. This 
is every day for them. You worry about the baby's health care. That's, that's secondary because the baby looks healthy. And I think the second thing, besides being a social diagnostician, hope that our curricula for future medical students will much more engage team-based care. And because the doctor or the nurse can't do it alone. We're not experts in the social diagnosis, and we need a broader team of people to be successful in getting that through. And for me, I think as you redesign the way to approach healthcare, the rate limiting step for us has been the doctor prescription. The doctor has been, you know, the, the doctor and the licensed professional can only write that on that piece of paper or now type into a machine that order. And we'll never have enough doctors to write all of the social and health orders that we need for people. We need other members of the team to be able to do that. And, wow, I think that's an important informing point for the way we go about leading beyond the individuals to the community or the public. Yeah, that's so well said. It's, you know, you, when we were corresponding, you you wrote something about that, which, and I'm really, really glad you brought it up, the idea that that the system does depend on this limited group of providers, physicians, uh, you know, for the healthcare decisions, uh, and it's flawed. And you, you wrote, and I'll read this, the, this is what you wrote me, you said the prescription pad is a metaphor for the constraint that our system poses to patients. We need to do better to serve others. And uh, I, I just, I don't know if you want to expand on that some more, but I, I just I just thought that is, I've never really thought that through, but it makes so much sense. Yeah, you know, it's interesting for me. I, I was very fortunate coming up in my medical education to have amazing mentors who helped me to look at challenges and problems differently and learn about how to approach them differently. And so I, I was fortunate to come up in a multidisciplinary team-based model. And, you know, in a busy intensive care unit, you are, you are making thousands of decisions in the course of the day. And it's always nice to know somebody's got your back. No matter what we're doing, we like to know that people are on our team and they're watching out for you. And so I remember... Specifically, I remember his name to this day, Carl. Carl was our clinical pharmacist, and Carl would help me when I didn't effectively adjust the dosage for renal insufficiency. Carl was there to say, hey, Tony, we want to make sure for patient Joe that we've got we've got to adjust for his renal insufficiency. Here's the new calculation. I'm sending a new order. Just sign it. Wow to have other members of the team who let the physician focus on the work of the physician, but pick up all of the other aspects of the health of people and the health care of people that are that the physician is too busy to do. And that allows the physician the time, the energy, and the mental focus to drive the conversation. You know, we're very proud here about our Healthy Nevada Project, which you alluded to earlier. And for me, the Healthy Nevada Project was where we offered for free community-based genetic testing to people. And not only are we giving them back their personal results, if they have a genetic predisposition to certain diseases, 
We've aggregated them. We're now approaching 50,000 people who have taken the test, and we have their medical records. So we're now approaching, you know, some level of epidemiologic statistical relevance for our community and our understanding strategically the kinds of programs we need to put in place for our community. But as great as that project is, Ev, because it highlights both the individual and personal level and the public health level of intervention, the thing that we've taken away from the project, there's two things, actually. The first gets to that metaphor of the prescription pad you alluded to earlier. Here, all we did was effectively crowdsource genetic testing. We said, our community is pretty smart people. We will offer for free, take away the financial burden, and offer for free the opportunity for genetic testing. And we will let people know the risk, benefits, and alternatives to that testing. And if you want it, put your hand up. And approximately 50,000 people put their hand up. No doctor prescription. No, you know, they have the opportunity to answer questions, ask questions. They have the opportunity to get their questions answered. And if there is something there, we give them, uh, you know, we suggest to them what they should do. We give them genetic counseling. We offer to them for free the results so they can bring it and have a conversation with their doctor. And if they don't have a doctor, we give them a list of doctors to choose from. But it's a different way of crowdsourcing health that we haven't thought about before. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's it's sort of direct-to-consumer health, right? Exactly. And for too long, I think we've been too paternalistic, worried about patients and not people who want to prevent themselves from becoming patients. And, and this, could, this goes, I think this touches upon the distinction you make between health and health care. And I just wonder if you could just pause for a second, maybe, or, or just dive into that for a second. I mean, how do you see that distinction? And I know you've been, you have been speaking to it, but I'm kind of curious. I like to think, we like to think of here at Rayon Health, healthcare is the things we do for you if you're sick or injured, right? Those are the episodes of care. That's how we're making sure that you get back our whole we, the only reason we exist is to keep people healthy and to restore them to health if they become ill or injured. And so with that as a grounding principle, the health care is about the treatment of the sick and injured, and the health is about allowing people to achieve this optimal health status from a, a physical, mental, spiritual perspective that allows them to live healthy lives. And that that kind of tension point of what's in the middle is exactly how we've organized the whole organization in our new strategic plan. We have a health division and we have a health care division. And that is carrying out the message in a much more deliberate way as we help our 7,000 team members understand their work about either helping people to get restored to health or live healthy. So let me ask you about that. So so I can imagine the healthcare division are your hospitals and your um, uh, clinic, uh, your ICUs, your surgical centers, maybe even urgent care centers. You talked about rehab centers you have. So what's in the, is it the institutes that are in the health division? Exactly. So it's the institutes, it's our health plan, you know, that we have an integrated health plan here that ensures one third of the, it's actually rather unique for health systems, but in, we ensure one third of the community. So we're not only the provider, but the payer 
for approximately one third. And the primary reason a health plan exists is to drive better health that doesn't use healthcare services. So in the health division is our health plan, the institutes I've talked about before, there are four of them, a child health institute, a healthy aging institute, and a behavioral health and addiction institute, and what we call our Institute for Health Innovation, which is where the genetics program and the Healthy Nevada Project sit. But we've also got our accountable care organization in that space. We've also got many of the other services that help us to drive better health from a prevention and immunization perspective. So it's, we're evolving this. We just started the new strategic plan in July of this year, but we wanted to be deliberate about how we were setting the conversation up to drive better health in our communities. And as a large health system for our community, we, we want to be there to answer questions, not only about you when you're sick and injured, but about, you know, what vitamins and herbals you should take to prevent you from getting sick. The division between the two, because I'm asking in part because in the book I recently published, I, I talk about one of the steps of the reframe roadmap is this idea of reorganizing healthcare. And I do believe we have to, it's not just enough to reorient and redefine the problems and, and redesign but you literally have to take that step of reorganizing. And I think this is just such a brilliant example of doing it. Uh, Intermountain is another example where they've divided themselves into two organizations, the, the hospital organization and then the community organization. It sounds s somewhat similar. And uh, so I really, I really love your, uh, and I'm so deeply interested in, in this separation of these two. They still report up to the senior executive team and do you have different staff and different, like you said before, different people with different expertise manning the institutes and running those? Yes. And so I, I think that uh, you've done an amazing job in reframing healthcare and helping people to really be creative about the way we think with a blank piece of paper. If you designed healthcare today from a blank piece of paper, you'd never design it the way we have it. Uh, and so we have to be brave enough to knock down those barriers and create what we think is optimal in providing performance for the health and healthcare of our community. Now, it sounds really good. And, you know, some of my dear colleagues who, uh, who share often with me tell me this is a great white paper. It'll be interesting to see how this works in play, you know, in real life. It's, it's important because effectively you want to be careful that you just haven't created two silos that don't talk to each other. Right, a health silo and a healthcare silo. The two organizing principles is to help us differentiate our work, but it's essential that the leadership team keeps its eye focused on the integration of those two operating divisions because, you know, people, the people that we serve don't sit in either the healthcare division or the health division. They're living their lives swimming between the two divisions, right? And I often say, if, you know, for us in healthcare, we've too often focused on the length of stay as the total existence. The hospital length of stay is, you know, that 3.5 days is the metric upon which we live our lives. But for the family and for the patient, they're just living life intersected with a hospitalization, you know, when you're eight because you broke your arm and when you're 25 because you have your appendix out and when you're, you're, you're 70 because you broke a hip. It's not about 
the hospitalization. That's not how people think about the center of their universe, except if you happen to work in a hospital. And we've got to change that dynamic and help people live life, not live illness care. And again, this is a reflection back to where when I had my cancer that helped inform this. I was a an outcomes researcher in the ICU. And for outcomes research in the ICU, all you're focused on is mortality as an outcome measure. Did you live or did you die? And over the course of the last 30 years in ICU outcomes research, we've come a long way. And now we're entertaining the other outcomes from ICU care. Are you oxygen dependent? Do you have chronic devices implanted? Because technology has advanced so far, yet our ability to keep up with that changes survivorship in a way that we couldn't even contemplate a couple of decades ago. And so what does survivorship mean? How do we help people to be resilient and live with conditions they never expected to have and, and live with hope in survivorship? Not the fact that they're limited by their illness or condition, but they can still live a productive life even with that condition or illness. In your health division, and for instance, in the Aging Institute, the so does that include providers as well? Does that include, let's say, complex chronic care medical homes, or is that really more focused on uh, that? Would be in the healthcare division. I'm just kind of curious how you've have you've separated them out. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and and so it's a little bit artificial, right? Sometimes we put things in the health division, sometimes it goes in the healthcare division. So one of the specialties in medicine that is is quite outstanding at understanding and being social diagnosticians are geriatricians. Geriatricians, like pediatricians, understand the complex milieu of caring for those patients and often will provide care in alternative settings, not hospitals, like home or skilled nursing facilities and allow the health care and the health to merge a little bit. So we try not to let ourselves be uh, hamstrung by the structure. But some of the things that we're talking about in the Healthy Aging Institute is how do we help people? So we have a club, if you will, helping those people 55 and over to drive to better health and so that they can live, you know, live their senior years out healthier. We call it the Sterling Silver Club. And for those folks, you know, it's about getting your preventive care now while you're 55 so that you might find something early and treat it and not get it when you're 65, right? It's those kinds of conversations. But we also know as a community, we have seniors living in isolation, you know, and so that isolation component comes in and contributes to things like dementia. We know that we've got food deprivation among our seniors in our community. And for many community, for many cultures around the world, seniors have been held up and revered and we've lost some of that in our current culture here in the States. Wow. You know, in, in Asia, your seniors are the ones that are held up. I know my grandparents, I come from an Italian background, and, and every holiday was spent at Grandpa Rick at my great-grandfather's home because that's where the family congregated around the patriarch. How did we lost some of that? 
How do we continue to revere and make sure our seniors have what they need to live out, you know, the autumn of their years in a way that is revered and austere? Yeah, that's great. And how about the uh, this? Uh, I almost feel like we need another uh, podcast uh, or discussion to, to dive into this. Two questions. One is I do want to touch upon the behavioral health. Institute and just hear a little bit about that. And then I just want to wrap up also and, and take you back to the Nevada Health Project, the Healthy Nevada Project, in terms of how are you putting all that information together and what you're actually offering to your community uh, uh, customers there. So if you could just touch upon the behavioral health, I would really love that. Sure. So we created, again, our Behavioral Health and Addiction Institute was a supported, uh, with generous support of Stacey Matheson, a philanthropist in town who like our other families, had uh, addiction and behavioral health become fundamental challenge for her family and wanted to do something about it for the community and has helped us to invest in programming, intensive outpatient treatment, day treatment programs, uh, making sure that we're doing effective screening in our school system for people who, for children who are at risk of addiction because, you know, we know that addiction is familial and also supported our research enterprise, and this is where it overlaps with the Healthy Nevada Project, is helping our researchers look through the multiple genetic, you know, we know that addiction is familial, do we know that it is genetic? Um, are there genetic predispositions to addiction that we need to be paying different attention to as we're screening people uh, at the population level for genetics? So. We're very excited about that. A, a, an employee said to me not long ago when I was visiting and rounding, Dr. Sloan, thank you so much. The Behavioral Health and Addiction Institute has taken those of us with depression or mental illness out of the basement and given us a real place we could go for care. And too often there's a stigma for people with mental illness. And again, it affects every one of us and our families. And so we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we go about creating that programming. But that overlaps nicely to the Healthy Nevada Project, where we have integrated now the genetic information with the phenotypic electronic medical record and the health status of people with the environmental components and publicly available databases like the birth registry and the death registry and the social determinants of health, including poverty, socioeconomic status, Medicaid and, and insurance status in our community, combining it with high crime zones and low crime zones to figure out, wow, who are the most vulnerable in our community? And in what ways can we work together side by side to empower those people to stand up and be self-supporting as well as to work with our elected officials and other not-for-profits to provide them the support, those zip codes, the support to step up and become healthy. And, and that's, you know, there's no better way to help people assure their health than to empower them and give them information that lets them stand on their own. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. And it's exciting. It's very exciting work. We're not, we're not all there yet, Zev. I don't want to miscast where we are. We're very early in the work here. But for us, we realized we couldn't do without the integrated data systems. And that, I think that is important point one is we've got 
all the way down to full genetic sequences. And our great partners at Desert Research Institute and Helix, who have helped us organize those data so we can understand what our community is vulnerable for. I would love to, in another conversation, dive more into the Healthy Nevada Project and also uh, into your uh, health division. One last question about the Healthy Nevada. So at this point, uh, are you are you able yet with this information uh, and analytics uh, to and all that data that you're talking about, the genetic and environmental and social and clinical, are you able to actually uh, do something and offer something to the individual yet, or is it still in process? Yes, no, we are giving back information. Last October, we started giving back tier one CDC conditions to individuals. So that includes the BRCA gene for breast and ovarian cancer, the gene for Lynch syndrome, which is a precursor to colon cancer, and familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a precursor to early stroke and cardiovascular disease. And so we're giving back individual information in tier one conditions And we hope later this year that we will now open that up to tier two conditions, which are the top 10 genetic precursors to illness and disease. Most of them are cardiovascular or oncologic in their origin. That's great. Are you at the point yet where you're able to identify individuals in the community, given again, all those streams of information that are in addition to the genetic predisposition and risk is there a larger kind of view what we call like the rising risk or is that something that, that has materialized yet or is that something that you're thinking about for the future? Yeah, I think the way that we've approached it, so we certainly have, if you do a heat map, we certainly have identified mechanisms to find those rising risk people from a social perspective, identify the rising risk people from a genetic perspective, identify the rising risk people from an environmental socioeconomic perspective. The, the kind of holy grail here will be how we identify the rising risk people across those domains, where the interactions of environment, genetics, and social come together. And we're not, we're not there yet. I just want to say where you are is just so far ahead. It's just absolutely wonderful. It's brilliant. I'm just uh, sitting here with my mouth open and can't thank you enough. And I know I promised you I would get you back on your schedule and time. We're a little bit over. So I want to thank you, Dr. Tony Slanom, as well as your colleagues uh, who, who I respect and admired as well for being a part of this uh, Creating a New Healthcare podcast and bringing us uh, really tremendously fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions. And as always, uh, I'd like to turn to the audience now and thank all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. Truly, truly appreciate you for what you do and, and recognize how critically important it is, how, how challenging it is, but again, important to individuals, families, uh, communities, and our society. I, I hope, as always, this podcast provides you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration. And I think you can tell that I am incredibly inspired and encouraged by, by what uh, Dr. Tony Slonom and his colleagues at Renowned Health are doing. Uh, this is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new health care. Until next time, be well.